Thank you for joining us for our interview with Dr. John Silva. Given Dr. Silva's role as one of the founders of the organization and the first president of ASP, we thought it was important to break up his interview into two episodes. This week is part one, and part two will air next week. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to another edition of ASP and Answered. I am Chelsea Wooding. Today with me are Brandon Harris and Katie Johnson. And we are joined, and we are so excited, we are joined by Dr. Silva, who served as the first president of ASP from 1985 to 1987. Dr. Silva is a professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Silva, thank you so much for making time to join us today. Again, I can't say enough how excited we are. So let's start off with you giving us a 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are now. Don't worry about how you got there. We'll get there in a second. But very briefly, just tell us a little bit about where you are mm -hmm. right now. Well, I'm, a, as you said, a professor emeritus of sports psychology at UNC Chapel Hill. I was on faculty there for nearly 30 years, uh, went through the ranks from assistant professor to full professor. I'm consulting with individual athletes still. Uh, in, I'm in retirement, but consulting with Major League Baseball, uh, PGA, and NFL specialists. I'm trying to gear that down. My wife says, when are you going to really retire? Uh, so I'm still doing the consulting work, which I enjoy very much. And my wife and I care for our, our two rescued beagles, uh, Bo and Sonny. Uh, we got them out of a kill shelter in South Carolina. They had two days left to live, so we just got them out of there. Uh, Chris and I also maintain 11 and a half acres of the property that we live on. Uh, we designed our own house, and uh, <clears throat> we've done everything on the property from planting the grass to planting all the azaleas and all the shrubs and flowers and cutting down trees and splitting wood. So that in and of itself is a full-time job. I'm also the executive director of Carolina Team Handball. It's uh, be talking about that quite a bit a little later on. It's the second most popular team sport in the world behind soccer, but not really well known in the United States. Um, but it's played on a court a little bigger than a basketball court with six court players and a goalie. <clears throat> and uh, I'm the executive director. I coached uh, the teams for quite a while. Again, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Uh, but we, uh, we're three-time collegiate national champions. And this past year, 2022, the team won the uh, USA Team Handball Division One Open National Championship. So the guys have been doing really well uh, with the team handball, and I enjoy right now being the executive director. I stepped out of the coaching when I retired. Uh, I do some informal advising to USA Team Handball. Uh, I was very involved with them uh, in, the, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, and again, we'll get to that a little bit later on. And then I do volunteer work for uh, Crisis Dogs North Carolina, it's a nonprofit that rescues dogs from kill shelters in North Carolina and South Carolina. And that's the group that we went through to rescue uh, Bo and Sonny. So that's a, kind of a nutshell of where I'm at right now. All right, John. So as Chelsea mentioned that we were eventually going to get to uh, um, that piece where uh, we talk a little bit about how you got to where you just described, you know, you're at right now. 
um, here we are. Um, so part of our podcast is to get a better understanding of how key figures in our field got to, to where they are today. And there really is no more pinnacle kind of key figure in our field than the founder of our, our great organization. And so could you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of the pathway that you took to get to where you are today? And then if there are any you know, particular moments um, or experiences that really stand out as kind of being formative, you know, in terms of leading you to where you are now, uh, please feel free to, to dive into that too. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Um, like I said, I'm going to give you the whole nine yards. Uh, it would have to start out. <laughs> That's what wonderful. we asked. It would have to start out with my father, without question. Uh, very close to my parents, very close to my in-laws too. They've all passed now, but when I was a kid, I grew up uh, right across the street from a large athletic park. And uh, across the park were housing projects and basketball courts. And uh, my dad and I, we play in that park, you know, all the time. And I play with my buddies. We'd, you know, have different kinds of pickup games. You know, <clears throat> if we didn't have enough guys to have a little pickup baseball game, we just put, you know, three or four guys out there, and you couldn't hit the right field or you couldn't hit the left field. But I, I spent Considerable amount of time over at the basketball courts. There were so many kids in the projects that would come out and play. And I spent an, just an enormous amount of time over there right up until, you know, high school. Uh, because my parents uh, shipped me out to a private school. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a kind of an inner city environment. And they wanted me to, to go to a, a better school, so to speak. And uh, I fought it. I did not want to go. Uh, but the youth sport teams that I played on uh, were fairly successful and the, the priests in the, in the North, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Michigan, they do it quite a bit. Uh, Illinois, uh, the priests from these Catholic schools, they, they go to hockey games like in Massachusetts and Michigan uh, and basketball games, those two sports in particular. And they watch the players play. And if there's some kids that are pretty good, they come up into the stands and they find out who the parents are and they give them pamphlets on the schools. So my parents said they wanted me to go to a, a Catholic school, to high school. My parents were both fervent Catholics. And I was like, you know, hell no, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to the, the high, there were five high schools in the city I grew up in, but two of them were really big and prominent. And uh, one was right in the city, right in part of the city that I lived in East Lynn. And I said, no, I, I'm going to Lynn English. You know, I'm not going to go away to school. I'm going to play with all my buddies. But my parents were, you know, pretty serious about it, and they made me take the entrance exams. And, you know, I didn't really try to do particularly well on them, but I don't think they even looked at them, to tell you the truth, because I got into all the schools that I took the entrance exams for. <laughs> and it ended up being the best four years of education, really, of my entire life. Uh, I went to St. Peter's High School in Gloucester, Massachusetts. It was quite a distance away from my house. We had Holy Cross Fathers there. They're all Notre Dame educated. Uh, they were very strict, but very fair. If you flunked one course, you were gone. Uh, we had a modular system, uh, one of the few modular systems back then outside of California. So we had free mods, and you could do anything you wanted during your free mod. You could go study. You go to language lab. You could go to a music lab. You could go downtown and eat pizza and shoot pool. You could do whatever you wanted. So you had to learn how to kind of manage your time, which helped me quite a bit when I went to college. I played three sports at St. Peter's, football, basketball, and baseball. 
And uh, I started four years in all three sports. So I was into sports heavily at a very young age. And uh, I got recruited by a lot of Catholic colleges in the Northeast. But to the dismay of the priests at St. Peter's, I didn't go to a Catholic university. Uh, I went to UConn on an athletic scholarship and played two sports there. Uh, and I was taking, I was a psych major when I started, and I was taking classes in the uh, exercise science department there just to kind of help myself as an athlete. Uh, I was taking uh, motor learning, exercise phys, nutrition, and I really enjoyed the classes. And then my second semester sophomore year, a faculty member came from Ohio State University named Thomas Sheehan, who back then he was a big name and he was a sports psych sports sociology, uh, and he was teaching a sports psychology undergraduate class, and I loved the class. And uh, about three quarters of the way through, I went up to Dr. Sheehan, uh, and I said, boy, this is like my interest coming together, psychology and sport. What do I need to do if I want to become a sports psychologist? And he said, well, <clears throat> you need to double major. So this was back in the 70s. And this guy is telling me to double major, which, you know, now I realize, you know, how brilliant and insightful that was. Uh, so I did. That was right. what I to do. I was already taking a bunch of the exercise science classes. So I ended up double majoring uh, at UConn. Uh, I was fortunate there to take a couple of classes with Julian Roeder, uh, father of social learning theory, uh, was on faculty at UConn. And uh, just had a great experience there doing the double major, playing the sports. Uh, you know, I knew I wanted to go on. And <clears throat> Dr. Sheehan said, OK, now you got to grad, got to go to grad school for four or five years. And I said, well, you didn't tell me that right up front. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Dr. Silva, so you were just sharing with us that you got this amazing wisdom to double major and you um then were surprised by information that you had to go back to grad school. Uh, so let's go ahead and pick up there. Yeah, well, surprised on how long I had to go to grad school, <laughs> according to Dr. Sheehan. But I was so into sports psychology by then, and the faculty at UConn in both departments were very helpful in letting me gear my papers and my work toward sports psychology, sports sociology type questions. So I was pretty pumped up. I knew I knew then it's what I wanted to do. Uh, so I was pretty excited. Uh, I applied to a number of graduate schools. I wanted to go to a science practice because I was interested in research and practice. But back then, it, it literally didn't exist. Everything was research oriented um, at the PhD level uh, in sports psychology and in the exercise sciences in general. But, was, uh, but um, Maryland had a program that was science practice, and that was my top choice. Uh, there was a faculty member there named Warren Johnson who was doing research and working with University of Maryland athletes and professional baseball players. And he published a couple of articles um, on sports psychology. And there was another faculty member there named Dr. Burris Hoosman who was doing applied work with Warren Johnson. And he also had interest in aggression and uh, normative compliance to rule violating behavior, which were two areas I was very interested in after playing football. Yeah. <laughs> I was very interested uh, in researching those areas. Um, so that was a nice fit. It had the science, it had the application. 
The only thing is I'd heard from all the other grad schools that I applied to, you know, the Florida states, the Ohio states, the Illinois, and, and had received assistantships from them and I hadn't heard anything from Maryland. So I, you know, I called Maryland myself and said, you know, hey, I, I gotta let these other schools know or I'm gonna lose my assistantship. They can't hang on to them forever. Uh, could you please let me know what my status is? And long story short, uh, I ended up getting in Maryland. Uh, I had a full assistantship. Uh, I was pretty excited. Uh, finally, my, my top choice came through. Uh, at first, we thought we weren't going to get any money. And my wife said, you know, if that's what you want, you know, we'll figure out, we'll make it work. You know, if you want to go to Maryland, that's what we're going to do. But they came through for me. Uh, and I was so happy. Uh, when I went to Maryland, it was a tremendous experience. Unfortunately, Dr. Warren Johnson died um, kind of young, uh, but I did get the opportunity to work with him a little bit. Uh, Dr. Hoosman was fantastic. He picked up the slack, so to speak, and uh, kept the sports psychology program going strong in research and practice. Uh, and I had a great time there. I taught uh, undergraduate sports psychology during my doctoral program, which really gave me a leg up in terms of you know when I was going to be in my professorship. I'd already taught you know, two and a half years of uh, sports psychology. I also taught a majors lacrosse course uh, and lacrosse is huge in Maryland, still is. Yes, yes, yes it is. Oh, and they were tremendous back then when I was there. They had a four-time All-American named uh, Frank Urso, the Italian stallion. <laughs> and, uh, I had all these lacrosse guys in my class and I was like, damn, you know, what am I gonna do with all these All-Americans I got in class? <laughs> But uh, it worked out. I actually gave them all um, kind of uh, a station to work at. So I had the All-American attack man working with attack, the All-American defense man working with defense. We had an All-American goalie. So that was tremendous. Uh, no All-American midfield, though. But uh, they, they loved that. And I told them their grade is going to be based on how well they did in teaching these you know, component parts of the class. So but, you know, I, I had them learn all the rules we had two big scrimmages at the end. Uh, we had a, a red team and a white team. You know, Maryland was red, white, black, and gold. And uh, the kids loved it. Uh, and the lacrosse players liked it a lot. They were majors, they had to take it. So, but they told the other lacrosse guys, you know, to, to take the class and they couldn't get in because they weren't majors. It was a majors only lacrosse class. So that was exciting. I taught racquetball during the summer. Uh, I became an avid racquetball player while I was at UConn because the football coaches like to take us down to the racquetball courts when we were freshmen and beat our brains out. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of ridicule you at practice at how badly they beat you. <laughs> oh, that was, that was the minor stuff. <laughs> but uh, I, I got determined to uh, whoop up on some of these coaches uh, before I graduated from UConn. And uh, I started playing a lot of racquetball. Uh, and when I was at Maryland, they had me teaching racquetball during the summer. And I entered into the Maryland State Open Championship twice and uh, finished second twice. I lost in the finals two years in a row to the same guy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, a guy named Whipple, I still remember it. His nickname was The Whip. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he was very good, very good player. But we went, you know, to a rubber match each time, each year. Uh, and he was a good sport and it was tremendous competition and you couldn't ask for anything better. So I was trying to apply what I was learning in sports psychology uh, by continuing to compete after my college days. Um, couldn't do 
football and baseball anymore, but I sure picked up racquetball and continued playing that uh, well into my 50s until I, I blew my knee out, my meniscus. Mm. Uh, and that kind of, my racket, my racket is still in the same spot by my front door. Uh, since I, I hurt it. my knee, I, I put it there because I was going to go back and play racquetball. Uh, but I ended up injuring my meniscus twice and now mm. I don't have one. <laughs> so that, that put it into my racquetball. Um, so, you know, from Maryland, I was now in the job market and there were three jobs in sports psychology the year that I came out. And uh, that's the way it was for a lot of years. Yeah. And of course, uh, you had Illinois and Penn State starting to produce a lot of students, a lot of graduate students. And that actually became kind of controversial because we had far more students coming out for sports psychology jobs than we had sports psychology jobs. Right. Yeah. And that was, you know, that was really tough. And that that carried on for quite a while uh, where we had m you know, more students than jobs. Um, so I applied for the three jobs. I got two interviews and one of the interviews came very, very late. And, and Marilyn said they would take care of me if I didn't get a job, you know, they'd carry me over for a year and, you know, give me employment and uh, doing the, the same things I was doing, you know, teaching those classes. But, you know, I wanted to get a, I wanted to get a real job. <laughs> And uh, Bill Morgan, do you guys know that name? I don't. The, I don't the, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Google him, uh, Dr. William Morgan. He was a faculty member at Wisconsin, uh, really big name in sports psychology in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and he was at Wisconsin for a number of years. And he decided in the summer, early summer, that he wanted to go to the University of Arizona and a job that was kind of like created for him. So he left late, that job came open late. And boy, you know, I knew the other two people that were interviewed, I, I knew well, they were you know, my age, my colleagues, uh, and we kind of laughed about it. Um, and I got offered the job. It was a one year because he left so late they couldn't fill it, you know, do a national advertisement that they, the way they needed to do it and fill it on a tenure track basis. Sure. So again, you know, my wife kind of came through for me and she said, hey, you know, if you want to move halfway across the country and take a one year job at Wisconsin, you know, we've never been there. Let's do it. <laughs> so uh, we packed up all of our stuff uh, from, you know, from Maryland and drove across the country with my dad and a couple of you know, family members and uh, moved to Madison, Wisconsin. My first job, knowing it was a one year, uh, but man, was I happy there. Uh, I loved the job. Um, I was teaching graduate students. I was 25 years old when I got my doctorate. So I was teaching graduate students who were older than me, <laughs> which was, was cool. You know, age never meant anything to me. You know, it was how, you know, how good you were and whatever it was, old, young, middle-aged, that stuff never mattered to me. But I had a wonderful experience, met tremendous people at Wisconsin, like uh, Margaret Jo Seyfried. She was the editor of the Research Quarterly at the time, uh, you know, the big journal in health and physical education. And still is, but really big back then. Uh, George Stelmach, you know, probably the top person in the world in motor learning. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Leonard Berkowitz in aggression was at Wisconsin. So, I mean, I couldn't ask yeah. for anything better there. You know, the, one of the top names in aggression research. 
at Wisconsin and he liked me. I was like a little kid to him, you know, <laughs> interested in sports and aggression. And, uh, you know, he was wonderful to me. We talked all the time and, uh, you know, I bounced a lot of ideas off of him and research that I was doing. Tremendous experience. So then the faculty had to decide what they were going to do. And there was rumors that Bill Morgan wanted to come back to Wisconsin that he wasn't happy at Arizona. Mm. So, yeah, he left it late. He left it in the summer, but you know he had a lot of you know close colleagues there, and he was a good man. He you know good good faculty member. So they had a vote on what they were going to do with the position, and I found out from some of the younger. I couldn't go to those meetings, of course, but I found out from some of the younger faculty that by one vote they voted to advertise it at all ranks, open at all ranks, versus an assistant professor job, which it was going to be. Mm. But they were great, you know, the faculty came to me and they said, you know, you know, we're really happy with what you did. And, you know, you know we're sorry that it's turning out this way, but we will support you, we'll help you in any way that we can. So I'm on the job market again, and that's okay because we knew that might happen. It was a one year, there was no guarantee I was gonna get the job. So back in the job market, <laughs> you know, again, there were like three jobs that year. And uh, I applied to all of them, of course. And uh, fortunate to get the job at State University of New York at Brockport, mm. uh, which was a much warmer climate than Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. Oh, yeah. We were 13 miles from the Canadian border at, at SUNY Brockport. Uh, but, it, you know, and they had, more, they had more snow than Wisconsin, but they didn't have 65 below wind chill. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got into it. We were cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, tobogganing at midnight under the full moons. We, we had a blast in Wisconsin, and we did in New York, too. Um, I was there for three years, and, you know, teaching 15 credit hours, you know, it was a pretty big workload, still trying to do my research, uh, wanting to keep my practice up. I started working with um, the SUNY wrestling team, which is Division Three national champions a number of times. Uh, Don Murray was a wrestling coach there. Uh, he was from Massachusetts, so... He spoke my language, so to speak. <laughs> you know, and he was a big Patriots fan, uh, you know, Bruins fan, Celtics, Red Sox, all that. So we had all that going, and he swore at me a lot. So you know, I felt like I was right back, right back home. <laughs> but Don was a great guy, and he was working with the USA Wrestling, the national program. So he got me involved with USA Wrestling. So now you know, I'm teaching at Brockport 15 hours. The students were very challenging, which I enjoyed. They made me a better teacher. They asked a lot of questions. A lot of kids from uh, the boroughs, from mm -hmm. Long Island, uh, Jersey City. And you know, they didn't take anything at face value. You had to really explain what was going on and they, they followed up. And, and I, I just became a better teacher really from that experience and uh, loved it to death. And working with the, uh, the wrestlers and several athletes at, at SUNY Brockport and then the national team, working with them and doing research uh, on elite athlete performance uh, with USA Wrestling. And uh, had a wonderful three years there. And nobody locked their doors, which was my wife understood it from where she grew up, but I didn't get it because... We had, we had a lock, we had a bolt, and we had a chain <laughs> on our door. But uh, we left Brockport you know, with a lot of good friends and a lot of good relationships. And, uh, it was hard to say goodbye to the kids because you, you, know, 
he got pretty close with them after three years and working with the student athletes and all. Yeah. That was really a hard thing to do. And of course, Don Murray swore at me, <laughs> yeah, but he was happy for me. And uh, I was blessed, really, because my next step in this path was I got hired in 1981 at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And mm. that was pretty exciting for all of us coming back, you know, little, you know, little kind of closer to home, not much, but a little bit. A little warmer climate, great school. Uh, and it was transitioning from a PE teacher preparation program to a sports science program. And they were bringing in you know, faculty that were scientists, mm. um, which was great. But, you know, it's a little disruptive to the people who had been here for many years who were good good at what they did in teacher education and coach education and all. But gradually those things were kind of being, you know, phased out a little bit. Uh, and the, the science, the exercise physiology, the motor learning, the sports psych, uh, statistics was kind of, you know, coming in. So we, we worked through that, you know, fortunately. Uh, <clears throat> and I was charged with setting up the sports psychology program. There was nothing here. So I was charged with, you know, creating the undergraduate sequence, creating the graduate program uh, and taking that in, in whatever direction, really, they let me take it in whatever direction that I wanted to take it in. So our grad program um, to this day, uh, really, really proud of and proud of the students that came through it. It was a two year program. Uh, it was science practice, just like the experience I had at Maryland. They did research, they knew their stats, uh, and they got to do consulting work. And uh, mm -hmm. we had three supervised, directly supervised practicums in our master's program. There was no PhD program at the time that had three directly supervised practicums. We had two where they worked under my supervision with individual athletes. Uh, and then they had one with Dr. Uh, Diane Max Stevens, uh, where she was in charge of the small group team interventions. Mm -hmm. So they got three experiences of direct supervision. We filmed everything. You know, it was pretty intensive. They stayed there many a late night, uh, but no complaints really. And if, if anybody did, I wouldn't tell you who they were. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was a great experience. And uh, back then, uh, you know, I started in the, the mid 90s telling my students to double major uh, under my undergrad students to double major, just like I was told many, many years ago, my master's students. Uh, and I know it was really you know, kind of controversial at the time, but I was telling them to, you know, get their master's degree and get this experience. We, we didn't quite have certification yet. And I was, you know, I was telling them to go get their terminal degree in clinical uh, counseling, social work, somewhere where they could sit for a license because I could kind of see what was going to happen. It was, it hadn't started yet, but in some of the conversations I had with athletic directors and coaches, uh, you know, our clinic, our sports psychology clinic, we met with a lot of athletes in a lot of different sports. In fact, Anson Dorrance, the soccer coach, quote, required his soccer players to take my undergraduate sports psychology course before the end of their second semester, sophomore year. 
Wow. Uh, and, and they did, and they were great. They were very good students too. And we had students from all the different sports in there. We had journalism students, you know, pre-law students, psych majors, you know, who weren't athletes. So it was a tremendous mix. And we always had, you know, some big name kids in there. Like, that's all right, you know, you see them light up. Uh, me a ham, you know, I, I called me a ham ham one time. <laughs> and she comes up after class and said, nobody calls me that except Anson. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. But, uh, you know, really enjoyed the opportunity to develop our graduate program uh, at Chapel Hill. Um, tremendous applicants from all over the world, really, uh, but mostly North America. But wonderful, wonderful experience. And, of course, I was working not only with the supervision work, but I was working with some athletes on my own, too. Uh, and around the same time, the president of USA Team Handball uh, was discussing with the director of the wrestling program, USA Wrestling Program, how he wanted to go more sports science and he wanted to have more sports science in team handball because the Europeans are great in, in team handball and it's such an American sport. It's all hand-eye, you know. It's like soccer with your hands. Mm -hmm. you know, and right. The ball is a little uh, smaller and harder than a volleyball. Travels 75 miles an hour in the men's game, 65 miles an hour in the women's game. You know, there's a goalie that wears no protection and you're making phenomenal saves in the goal. And once people see it, if you've never seen it, YouTube it, uh, do world championships, you know, USA, you know, world championships, uh, handball. Uh, and it's just a phenomenal game, really athletic game, up and down, up and down, fast breaks, there's contact in it. So Dr. Buning uh, from handball, you know, talked to the national director of wrestling, uh, you know, about getting more science oriented because wrestling was very science oriented back in the mm. 70s and the 80s. They were a little bit ahead of the Olympic curve. And I was working with uh, USA Marathoning because uh, mm -hmm. they did the uh, marathon trials in 1980 when I was in Brockport. We're in Buffalo at the Skylon course. And all the uh, runners had warm up shirts on that said the road to Moscow ends here. And we ended up boycotting in 1980, and yeah. uh, such a disappointment for those guys. Yeah. And I was working with USA Crew because they were training in Syracuse, New York, uh, and I had some colleagues at Syracuse University, and we were doing work with them. So I had to kind of back off of that work when Dr. Buning came to me and asked me if I would work with USA Team Handball. And you know, as soon as I saw the sport, I mean, I fell in love with it. How could you not? And Having played played baseball, you know, throwing sport, team handball is a throwing sport. I mean, it was so exciting, and I got to know the guys pretty quickly, and had a lot of fun with them in the beginning. Like they would put me at the penalty line to take penalty shots against our national team goalie, and you know, at the time they didn't know that I played college baseball, and I, I kept scoring on them, and they were all laughing at the goalie, you know. <laughs> but me and the goalies actually became best friends. Uh, so it was a great experience, um, and I got really involved with handball. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But at the same time, I've always kind of been a multitasker. Uh, I started to form ASP. So it's 1985, and uh, we had only NASPA, you know, kind of going on. Mm -hmm. 
it was a good organization, but it was very research focused. And I had asked NASPA three times to address the professionalization of the field. And, you know, at that time I was like 31, I was an assistant, you know, untenured assistant professor. And they, you know, they kind of blew me off to be honest with you, um, you know, which I didn't like, but I can understand it. You know, here's this, you know, kind of young guy coming here telling us to mm. address the professionalization of the field, you know. And NASPA was, it was great, it was good, but there was a little bit of elitism there. You didn't feel comfortable as a student. You didn't feel that comfortable as a young professor. And, and we all talked to each other. We all felt the same, you know, the young, younger people. So I finally petitioned, formally petitioned NASPA to put to the vote of the membership, whether they were going to address professional issues or not. Uh, so I forced their hand and at first, I was hoping that they would, you know, support it so we could do it kind of through NASPA. But as it turns out, I'm kind of glad that they voted it down because then it gave me the freedom to go ahead and form ASP, Triple ASP, right. <laughs> the Association for the Advancement of Applied Sports Psychology. And I still don't understand to this day why they took advancement out of it because that's what we're all about. That's what we, you're always trying to advance. So uh, I went ahead. And I founded ASP um, and also organized the first two conferences. The first one was in Jekyll Island, 1986. And the second one was at Newport Beach, California, 1987. Uh, around the same time, I also ran five marathons. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I ran them all uh, around an 830 pace except for the uh, New York City, I think it was 1984. Um, it was really hot and humid. A guy died at the Queensboro Bridge. Oh my. Uh, Mario Pizzolato won for the men and he had cramps in both of his calves. And he had to stop several times in Central Park when you know, he kind of close to the finish line. Uh, and that race forced them to move the date further into the fall for sure. the New York City Marathon. But uh, again, I was, always trying to kind of apply, uh, you know, what I was learning and what I was doing. And I think that's a good model also, not only for your graduate students, but for athletes that you're working with. And when I was working with the marathoners, you know, I said to my wife, you know, I've never been a runner. You know, I mean, I hated it when I was in college when we had to run for like football and baseball. <laughs> but I admire the discipline of these marathoners. You know, they were in law school, they were in med school. And they're training over 100 miles, 120 miles a week. Yeah. You know, how do these guys do that? And, you know, I thought I was a multitasker. And I, I thought I had a lot of discipline. And I said to Chris, my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to train for one. And, uh, you know, in typical fashion, you know, she said, hey, you know, if that's what you want to do. You know, let's do it. And, uh, you know, Chris trained with me for a couple of them. She got up to 20 miles. And. But she wouldn't, nah, she, she wouldn't run the marathon. I said, it's just, you know, 6.2 more miles. Come on. So we did a lot of, you know, training together. And uh, I, I, I ran two alone. I wanted to run some alone where I trained alone and I ran alone. I just, I just wanted to have that experience. And then I ran three. One with Charlie Hardy. Oh, is that right? <laughs> and in fact, the first marathon I ran, I ran with Charlie Hardy. It was a Virginia Beach uh, called the Shamrock Marathon. We trained together. I got a picture of him and I after a 20-mile training run. 
and uh, we're all leaning in, holding up one more, you know, one more long training <laughs> run to go. Yeah, Charlie was my marathon, first marathon partner. Wow. Yeah. And uh, then also around the same time, I published uh, two versions of Psychological Foundations of Sport, one with Bob mm -hmm. Weinberg, and then the second with, uh, with uh, Diane Max Stevens. Mm -hmm. And then I also published what I think is still the best book on training professionals uh, to become practitioners, training professionals in the practice of sports psychology with John Metzler and Bart Lerner. Yeah. Uh, if you guys haven't picked it up, you know, it is a, a couple of years or so old, but, you know, I think it does a great job of marching through what you need to do to train somebody, educate and train somebody uh, to be a sports psychologist. I'm looking at it on myself right now, John. So that's uh, for the, what, what we hope are millions upon millions of <laughs> That's a that's a plug, another plug for for the great work that you and and, and John did. Yeah, and, and Bart too. But you know, Bart, Bart was right Bart, in there. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Good old Bart Lerner. So that you know that that brings us up uh, you know quite a ways. Uh, got a couple more things for you. And uh, I went to I went to Seoul, Barcelona, uh, and Atlanta Olympics. And when I came back from Seoul, I was so impressed with the international. I was so impressed with everything, really. Uh, it was quite dangerous going to Seoul. There was a lot of tension back then. They said they were going to blow up the Olympics. And every place we went, we had armed guards. And they would slide under our bus and check underneath the bus. And then when we'd go to a practice venue, there'd be two armed guards at our practice venue. Uh, so everything, you know, thank God, you know, went well. And. We uh, we did pretty well in those, you know, especially in that one in Atlanta. We we did pretty well. But when I came back from uh, Seoul, I thought, man, you know, this is such a tremendous sport. And I started working with them in '87. Uh, Dr. Buning talked me into it, uh, and I came back from Seoul and I said, I got to start a club here at Carolina. Mm. This sport is so great. I got to expose, you know, this area. I got to try to help develop this sport, you know, around this area. I'm going to start a club. So I started the Carolina Team Handball Club in, in 87. I was still working with USA Team Handball with the national team. And uh, we hosted uh, national team training camps in Chapel Hill. And we started two tournaments, uh, the Carolina Blue Cup, which is considered one of the top tournaments in the country outside of the Open Nationals uh, and the Tar Hill Invitational, which is uh, one of the few fall tournaments uh, in team handball. Uh, and we've had tremendous competition uh, from the United States and we've had foreign teams come. We've had teams come from France, from Russia, you know, to play in, in the Blue Cup. The Blue Cup is, is really a big deal. Um, and I coached a women's South team to a bronze medal in the 93 Olympic Festival, and the men's South team to a gold medal in the 95 Olympic Festival. So I got my coaching certifications. I got my referee certifications. Um, I really got involved in handball uh, at a full level. Um, I coached both the men's and women's teams for a while. I was getting home at 10.30, you know, 11 o'clock most nights, you know, but, you know, I, I didn't let anything else slip. I kept all my responsibilities up. And uh, 
we won three collegiate national championships uh, during my tenure and you know, several medals at national level tournaments. Uh, so had a tremendous experience there with handball. Uh, I'm now the executive director. When I retired from Carolina, I passed the coaching responsibilities on to some of my former players who were still in the area who I had been kind of mentoring as assistant coaches. I knew, you know, that day was coming one day and I wanted to have a smooth transition. You know, our club has been so important really in helping develop handball. So they're doing a great job. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, they just won the uh, 2022 U.S. Open Division I National Championship uh, with, with our new coaches, and they've been doing a tremendous job. Uh, I retired in 2008 from Carolina. Um, honestly, it was an easy decision. Mm-hmm. My wife and I had always had early retirement in our life plan. We kind of, we got married at 20. Um, and, you know, we, we've been on the road, so to speak, ever since, you know, pursuing career and, and, and different opportunities with the blessings of our families, uh, wonderful families, close with our families. Mm-hmm. But we'd already, we'd already had in our life plan, we're going to retire young. But we didn't quite think that young. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Chris's dad passed away. My dad passed away somewhat unexpectedly. You know, he was in great shape. I mean, better shape than I am right now. Um, And it was a real shock to the system to lose both of our dads uh, being so close. And our moms were, you know, kind of home alone in the Boston area. My mom in an inner city, couldn't get her out of there. You know, big Italian family. Uh, Still, my sister still lived in the Boston area. Uh, you know, lots of relatives still in the Boston area. And, you know, my mom would come visit, uh, but, you know, she wasn't going to move. My mom and dad built that house after World War II. They raised us in that house. And, you know, my mom was going to stay there in that house. So uh, Chris and I looked at each other, you know, and we said, hey, you know what? You know, we've been on the road. We've been gone since 72, June of 72. Never made it back home. I thought I might get a job in New England one day. Uh, and I turned a job down at Dartmouth uh, many, many years ago, uh, which was really tough to do because it was close to home. But I just gotten tenure at Carolina. And mm. the job at Dartmouth was in the athletic department, serving at the pleasure of the athletic director, which is how all those jobs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I asked the athletic director if he could get me a position in the psychology department uh, where I could teach some classes and, you know, in sports psych. And if, if anything happened, I would have that to fall back on. And the Dean told him, this is the Ivy league. The tail doesn't wag the dog. So. <laughs> okay. the, uh, well, there you go. Okay. Ivy league way of saying no. <laughs> yeah. So Chris and I talked about it. We, you know, I declined the job. And as it turned out, it was okay because the athletic director, two years later, left. Chris and I just looked at each other and said, wow, you know, I'd be like maybe 40 years old looking for a job after spending two years just doing all applied work and no more research. That'd be tough to get back into that job market, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I had just gotten tenure at Carolina. So in, in the end, that, that turned out to be, you know, a, a good no. But 
we uh, we retired young, went back home, um, tried to you know do the best we could with our moms. Chris's mom beat cancer, three different types of cancer. We were taking her in for her treatments and everything during this time. That was our priority. I was still keeping my responsibilities up, you know, flying out of Logan when I had to, Logan Airport when I had to. And uh, we're so happy we did that at the, that point in our lives uh, and helping our moms. Um, Chris's mom eventually passed from pneumonia after beating three different cancers. Uh, my mom lived in that house in Lynn until she was 95 years old. Uh, and then she had to move to my sister's house. My sister's a nurse in Beverly, Mass, when she was 96 years old, and she passed at 96. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we're so happy we did what we did, you know, and then we kind of, you know, came back, to, you know, we were back and forth between Carolina and Massachusetts quite a bit there, and then we came back to, you know, to Carolina after the, the moms died, uh, and kind of that 32nd thing. I'm the executive director of Carolina Team Handball, working with the professional athletes, you know, tending the 11 and a half acres, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. So we're happy to be doing what we're doing and taking care of our beagles too. And that's kind of the full circle, guys, of my pathway. I know it was a long pathway, but that was it. There's so many things in there too. And we won't ask you to obviously repeat, <laughs> you know, you don't have to, to dig back in. Um, one of the things that, that you mentioned, John, that, um, I mean, there's a lot and, and, you know, with, with UNC Chapel Hill being part of the state school system, correct? Uh, yes, sir. Of yeah. North Carolina, you know, being at a, at a, um, you know, at a state school myself, I, and I know it varies from state to state, but I, I find myself more and more aware of how difficult it certainly is now. I don't know if it was, you know, um, back when you went through this process, but to get new programs started, to even get faculty positions approved, I mean, the number, the, the amount of, of red tape and between the Board of Regents and all these other entities that have to basically give the okay to, um, to do anything. You know, when you mentioned being brought out to Chapel Hill to, to start a, a program, in my in the back of my mind I'm thinking my goodness you know like that's that in and of itself um says a lot about you and then I have to Mm -hmm. to think the value of what you had to offer um at that time you know in particular since you know you're on their radar um that that to me seems like a pretty big deal and I know you kind of glance, you know, just kind of glanced over, over that. Um, I, again, I don't know if it was different back then, but, but that's a, seems like a pretty formidable, um, just an incredible uh, accomplishment and honor, it would seem to me. Well, Brandon, I, I got a gift, honestly, because as you said, I was brought in to create a program, so I didn't have to fight to create the program. Now, I did have to fight to get a second faculty member, and you know who that second faculty member was, right? I, at the time, so you mentioned Diane Stevens. Yeah, before her. Come on, your buddy at Wilmington. Oh, Charlie, it would have been Charlie. Charlie. My yeah, goodness. Charlie yeah. Hardy. Yeah, and I had to fight like hell, you know, to get a second faculty member. That, that's what the problem was. Everybody was fighting for scraps. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and, you know, we lost motor learning, you know, 
which was too bad, you know, because the guy in motor learning was good, you know, and then it was going to be like, what are we going to expand in? And, you know, we, we had a external review that said sports psychology and exercise physiology should go to the doctoral level. And, you know, that created more chaos, you know, than, mm-hmm. any, than anything else. And that's, I think, the saddest part. I loved everything about being on a faculty at Chapel Hill. But, you know, the saddest part was, you know, not being able to come to consensus about, you know, we, we can't do everything for everybody. Right. Uh, you know, and what are we, what are we going to do? Like, where are we really strong and what should we put our resources in? And it was really tough when I came there because we were phasing out of the teacher preparation. Right, right. And you know, I wanted to make sure those people understood that I respected them. I mean, I was doing all kinds of science practice. They saw me out running all the time and playing racquetball. And <laughs> right. they, they would come to the team handball, you know, tournaments and stuff. So they, they you know, they saw I was very you know, practical oriented, very sports oriented. I wasn't you know, aloof out there somewhere. And I didn't care about these teacher prep people. I did care about them. Uh, but that, that was hard. They were older faculty. And I think that, you know, they felt like, you know, one way or another, they were going to maybe get, get phased out a little bit. So, I mean, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's hard to add faculty, and especially in our area, because most sports psychology people, other than Bob Singer, really, mm-hmm. uh, they don't become chairs of departments. Right. Uh, Andy right. Ostro did at, at West Virginia. Mm-hmm. In fact, a little aside I can give you, when I was trying to get accreditation going like 25 years ago, um, I'm glad to see their finally starting to address that now. Uh, Andy Ostro uh, changed his program Mm. to kind of fit what the certification program was kind of looking like. And he said to me, John, you can take our program at West Virginia and use it as like, I don't want to say guinea pig, that's not the right word, but, you know, use it as kind of a, a, a test program. Right. You know, to see how well we're doing to fulfill the criteria for certification for individuals who want to go into sports psychology and would that model be kind of good enough for accreditation? And Andy did, you know, he did rechange that program around and made it a really, I think, a really strong program in in that regard and produced a lot of really good students uh, that went on. But, you know, there we were, and again, I'll get to this uh, more detail. There we were at ASP and I'm trying to get them to pay attention to accreditation, it blows my mind that we are where we are in 2022 and we still haven't accredited any graduate programs. We can't come to any agreements on how to prepare people. We have students constantly sending stuff uh, to the sports cyclist. What do I do? What classes do I take? What should I major in? You know, what should I do for my doctorate? Should I go like a um, exercise science route, or should I go a clinical or counseling route? You know, and it's because of our negligence, you know, and I mean, mm. I really tried hard, but I tell the presidents all the time, I always send a, a note out to whoever's elected president of ASK congratulating them. And, and I tell them, this is a great opportunity. You know, you're going to be able to have the most impact while you're in power as the president of this great organization. So, you know, come in running and 
if you were at the uh, keynote I gave at the 20th anniversary, I talked about presidential disconnect and how we have presidents coming in and they don't connect with what the previous two presidents are doing. You know, the president elect doesn't connect with the president or the past president. So you come in with your own ideas and your own, you know, programs, but you don't get it done in the three years. And then it kind of gets dropped if the president and the president elect coming in don't connect with what you're doing. And I kept telling them, you know, we got to have continuity. We all can't come in with just all our own stuff and not connect with the things that are going on. And I think you know, we're doing a little bit better with that now, especially with these three presidents we have right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they all completely understand sports psychology. They understand science practice. They understand the educational and training challenges that we've had. Absolutely. And we just got to do better for our students. You know, we shouldn't have students wondering in 2022, what's the pathway to become a sports psychologist? Right, right. Yeah. Well, on that note, that's actually a beautiful transition, Dr. Silva. If we can kind of go back a little bit, you mentioned, you know, back in 1985, you're with NASPA, you're asking them to vote, you call this to a vote. And so can you tell us a little bit more about the field prior to that moment? Um, Maybe what was going on broader in the field, the field of sport and exercise psychology in general? and, and things that were maybe particularly relevant to you to say, this is the time, this needs to happen now. Can you give us a little bit more context about the field in general that made you say, it's yeah. now or never, let's do this? Yeah. Well, like I said, NASPA was it. And they were research oriented and they didn't want to pick up the professional aspect. And the practice was really starting to expand. Sure. And we had people that we had no idea who they were coming out of the woodwork. Not that it's changed tremendously. (laughs) We still have that issue. But, you know, we had people, we had no idea who these people were. They didn't even come to NASPA, let alone come to ASP later, uh, saying, I'm a sports psychologist. I can Mm -hmm. do this. I'm a licensed psychologist. You know, I can do this. I can do this sports psychology stuff. And it just, it it was getting bad uh, that so many people were mostly trying to work with Olympic teams back then, uh, not so much the university teams, but certainly the Olympic teams and professional athletes and a bunch of people you know, who were kind of like gurus uh, got in with tennis players and golf um, and some professional uh, sports teams. So going through a, a program like Maryland that was science practice, that was very rigorous, I just thought, you know, that's not right. It's not right for the the clients. You know, you shouldn't Mm. be learning on the job, you know, figuring it out on the job. And again, I look at sports science and the questions that are asked on there sometimes. You know, I say to myself, you should have learned that in your master's program. You know, you're going to go out and provide services to somebody for pay and, and you don't know what you're doing and you're sending a question out to the sports site listserv on, you know, can you tell me what to do? I mean, I think it's great to consult with different people and get different you know, sources of input, but you should have an idea of where you're going and what you're doing before you ever think about charging somebody. Sure. So that was going on. And since NASPA didn't want to deal with it and they voted it down, you know, honest to God, and Charlie and I, you know, sitting in a sports psych lab one day, and I said, Charlie, you know, this is just not right. I don't even think mm. it's ethical. 
and you know, I'm going to start a new organization. And he said, well, what are you going to call it, John? And I said, that's, you know, that's easy. You know, I'm going to call it the Association for the Advancement of Applied Sports Psychology. Wow. Said, we need to advance applied sports psychology and science and practice. And Charlie, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> you know, if you know Charlie, you know, that was Charlie, I'm in. So um, we had a lot of practice kind of going on. It was very unregulated. Uh, and I thought, you know, we got to do something about it. And when uh, NASPA voted it down, I announced at the uh, 1985 Gulfport, Mississippi NASPA conference at a special meeting that I was going to start a new organization called the Association for the Advancement of Applied Sports Psychology. Now, back then, again, all the programs were pretty much, you know, research-based programs. Um, NASA was pretty much motor learning, motor development. Sports psych was just kind of starting to, to creep in there with um, Bob Singer, who was a, definitely a lead on that. Uh, Dan Landers was starting to do a crossover with motor learning and sports psych. Uh, and probably the biggest kick, helpful kick, was Reiner Martins at the University of Illinois, where he started doing quite a bit of applied work with his, <clears throat> with his students. Uh, and looking at a lot of social psych issues, uh, anxiety-related issues, they started publishing stuff uh, that was sports psych-oriented. Uh, you know, so that was a, a big boost. Uh, so, you know, it looked like the, the door was open. It looked like you know we're definitely going to be going in that direction. Uh, this is a great time to do it. NASPA doesn't want to do it uh, now. To be honest with you, a lot of people told me I was crazy to do this. Um, I didn't think so. Uh, somebody, somebody had to do it. I was told that it was going to ruin my career. Wow. I, oh, yeah. Point blank by more than one person. And uh, I was not tenured yet when I started ASP. I was still an assistant professor. And then another individual told me I would never publish again. Uh, and these were people I respected uh, uh, very much. I was in a, you know, taken back a little bit, the things that I was told. So there were some people that were really not happy. Uh, uh, they said we couldn't handle another organization, that I was undermining NASPA, uh, which I thought this was an add-on. Mm -hmm. Probably sure. the smartest thing that I did is I didn't, I didn't argue with them. I didn't debate them. In fact, at the meeting at Gulfport, when some people you know, tried to kind of get me into an argument and a debate, I said, I'm going forward with this. You know, if you want to be part of it, you know, we welcome you. But I'm not going to debate the merits of whether we need this or not. It's going to happen. Um, so I'm not going to stand up here and debate with you. I'm going to present to you what we're going to do. And I think that was the smartest thing I ever did, not getting dragged into that. So uh, I, I said at this Gulfport meeting, um, we need to elect a president. And that president needs to establish an executive board so we can get this organization off the ground quickly. Mm. I was concerned if I didn't move quickly with what was going on in the field at that time, which was mostly research, uh, and there being some opposition from well-known people to us trying to start this organization, I thought there would be a lot of attempts to maybe undermine what we were doing uh, convince people not to get involved with what we were doing. So I wanted to move quickly. Um, and there was a lot of support from 
junior, you know, junior faculty, you know, younger faculty, um, they saw what was going to happen too. Uh, so I announced, you know, we need to elect the president and I'd like to have you vote right now here at Gulfport <laughs> for a president. And, you know, it could have been anybody, you know. <laughs> so the vote was taken and we went up to a hotel room um, at Gulfport. And I was trying to remember, Charlie and I were talking about this. I was trying to remember who was in the room. I didn't count the votes. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know it was Charlie. It was Kelly Crace who became our business manager. Uh, Bob Weinberg. Michael Passer, you might not remember him. He was at UCLA. Um, and we were trying to remember whether Bob Valoran was in there or not. And Mike Sachs can't remember whether he was in there or not. <laughs> and those are the people that I, I thought were in there. And Bill Straub was another one. He's passed away now. Uh, he might have been in there too. So this group of people came up. Uh, Bob carried the votes up. And uh, they, they, they shook them out on a, on a bed and they counted the votes. You know, I just sat in the corner <laughs> and they said, OK, John, you, know, you, you got it. You know, you're the founding president. And I got I got to work right away. I mean, I really did. Um, I went back and I asked a number of people to, to serve on the um, the e-board uh, and they didn't want to do it, you know, and they felt like that their career you know, might be in jeopardy. And that's sure. what, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's what, that's what was, when you asked me what it was like. Yeah. You know, and that, that's what it was like. But, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I wasn't worried about it. You know, if I had to explain these things to my chairman, I thought I could. And, you know, I felt that they would evaluate me when I came up for tenure on my teaching, my service and my research. And I was publishing quite a bit back then. Uh, the faculty liked me. I did connect with the teacher preparation people. They, I think they got a kick out of me, you know, kind of doing the stuff that I was doing. Um, uh, I bought the first computer in our department. Uh, I showed other people, like some of the teacher prep people, I'd have them come to my office and I showed them how to use the computer. And we don't need that dang thing. <laughs> said, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was like, you know, if that's the way people are going to be, let them be, you know, I, I'm not going to you know, turn away from that. I, I'll let my my faculty judge me on my own merits uh, if, it, if it comes to that. Now, I understood that, you know, they can send out letters to different people. And if it went out to the wrong person who was opposed to ask be informed that, you know, that could harm me. But, you know, again, I, I wasn't that worried that it was going to ruined my career. Now, not publishing, that was pretty interesting because at the time, we didn't, we, we didn't have a non-proprietary journal. Mm, we, right. we basically had two journals. They were both proprietary, which means they were owned by a person or an individual. Uh, and the editor was controlled by the owner. And when I spoke up again as a young whippersnapper, that we needed to we needed to change the editor. We had the same editor for years, and the ed, and having served as the editor of Jazz, you know, the editor can control who these manuscripts go out to. Yeah. I mean, you really can control if you want to, uh, kind of what gets published and what doesn't. Right. Like when I was editor of Jazz, after a while, 
I learned that there were some people that rejected everything. Right. Especially if it was something in their area and they didn't kind of like the findings. So, you know, you always had to send it out to two or three people. And then sometimes, you know, you had to make a decision as the editor, you know, if, if you send, only send it to two and it was a tie, I, I liked to send it to a third when that happened. Um, but, you know, you had to make some tough decisions. And back then with, you know, proprietary journals uh, and the owner of one of them getting a little upset at me for saying, you know, we really need to rotate the editorship a little bit. We've had the same editor. And they say, I own the journal. I can keep that person the editor for as long as I want. Was that, you know, kind of what I was told uh, to that. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't fool with that one anymore. Uh, but Bill Straub, you know, he was the one that said, you know, what about a journal, John? You know, we have to have a journal, John. You know, we need a non-proprietary journal, John. And I was like, you know, darn, Bill, you know, I, I got my hands full right now with getting asp off the ground. And uh, he said, no, no, we can't wait. We can't wait. We need to have a journal. So, you know, we did. Let me tell you a couple of interesting things. Ron Smith uh, agreed to be the president-elect mm -hmm. at the University of Washington. And um, we held our third conference in Seattle at the University of Washington. Uh, Gene Williams uh, agreed to be the secretary treasurer. And Gene did a fantastic job. Uh, and to this day is really on top of stuff still. Uh, you know, with, she loves ASP, uh, you know, so much. And I, I'm in communication, you know, with pretty much all of these people, uh, some more than others. Uh, Charlie Hardy was the membership director, uh, and he did a fantastic job. And, you know, most everything was going out in paper back then. We didn't have email. Right. Sure. Yeah, so everything was, you know, going out in paper. Uh, we, I come up with a charter membership idea, and it was just a, certain period of time that you could be a charter member of ASP and that that went over really well. Bill Straub was the publications director, you know, pushing me for that Journal of Applied Sports Psychology. Uh, and, and again, he's passed away, but I'm so thankful for the encouragement, the constant encouragement, you know, he gave me uh, to, to get the journal going. Uh, Kevin Burke, if you guys know Kevin, yeah. he was a graduate student at Florida State University at the time. And uh, I appointed him as our first student representative with full voting rights. Mm. And Charlie and I looked around all over the place in different organizations, not just in psychology. We could not find any other organization, uh, and we just might have missed it. That and we looked that had a student on the executive board with full voting rights. Right. So that's something else we were proud of uh, having a, a student who could vote and represent the students. Uh, Mike Sachs uh, agreed to be the chair of the health psychology area. We had three areas. Um, Bert Karen, tremendous colleague, agreed to do social psych. So we had the Canadians in there. Uh, Dan Kirschenbaum from Northwestern University, a psychologist, clinical psychologist, agreed to do uh, intervention performance enhancement. And uh, Kelly Crace was uh, not an e board member, but he was our business manager. He helped us out with the nonprofit status and corporation. You know, Kelly was a grad student and he just did a phenomenal job handling some of these business issues and, you know, keeping business, business and ASP, ASP. And I'm going to talk about that later. You know, ASP as a business versus ASP serving its membership. I, mm. I have some issues there. 
I want to share with you when you ask me about the good and the bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the first organizational meeting, stepping back a little bit, was October the 3rd, 1985 in Chapel Hill. And those people that I just mentioned that were on the executive board, the first executive board was appointed. Uh, they all came to Chapel Hill on their own nickel. I mean, what a tremendous uh, deed for them to do. And we tried to treat them really well and take good care of them. And we had a number of them speak to our student athletes and coaches and the, the place was packed. I mean, you couldn't get over 200 people in a large lecture hall, people standing out in the corridors. And I played them up, you know, rightfully so, you know, who they were, who Ron Smith was, who Gene Williams were. I mean, these were people that our coaches and athletes, need, you know, they needed to come in here. And so that went over really well, a lot of excitement there. Then we headed out to Nags Head, uh, October 4th and 5th, and I cloistered everybody. <laughs> and uh, you, you, you couldn't leave. You know, we, we worked like you couldn't imagine. Let me just tell you a couple of the things that we did. We formulated the Constitution. We organized the structure and format of the first conference. We discussed membership dues and a code of ethics. We discussed certification versus accreditation. We actually had a debate at this you know, founding meeting as to whether we should do certification first or accreditation first. Mm. Now, I, I was big on both of them. <laughs> and I was kind of actually hoping we did accreditation first, thinking that if we can lay out the experiences that you need, that those experiences would lead to certification, kind of what you know Andy and I had talked about right. with him wanting to do with his program. Uh, and we had a really healthy debate. And there was so much concern by board members that we had too many people out there calling themselves sports psychologists and it was so unregulated that we really needed to do something there first. And that's how we ended up with, with certification. Um, to select our conference site, I drove all over the Southeast in my 1978 Volvo, uh, <laughs> visiting hotels and resorts. Um, all on my own nickel, but that, that, that was never a problem. Uh, finalized with the Villas Resort in Jekyll Island. And I think you guys will get a kick out of this. Four-night package. Let me read this so I don't make an error. Four-night package at a beautiful resort right on the beach. Four-night package at the Villas Resort, including your meals. $274 for single occupancy, $194 for double occupancy. Stop it. Yeah, you all your meals and you, luxurious villa resort room. Now, there's a lot of negotiating that went on there. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> the other thing was uh, we had a golf tournament for many years. We had a golf tournament before ASP and we got insurance. But if you got a hole in one on one of the holes, you were going to win a brand new Mazda sports car. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the first I've heard that. That I did yeah. not know. <laughs> Oh, and Gene Williams and Dan Kirschenbaum, you know, they've played a lot of golf. They were all helped up, but nobody got the, the hole-in-one. Uh, listen to the speakers we had at the first conference. The Coleman Griffith was Bonnie Strickland, the president-elect of APA at the time. Wow. Donald Meichenbaum. Meichenbaum, if you yeah. can imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Donald Meichenbaum, Intervention Performance Enhancement from the University of Waterloo. Jim Blumenthal from Duke University, a big health psychologist. Reiner Martins, University of Illinois, and social psych. I mean, what a lineup for your first conference. 
incredibly well attended. You know, we didn't know whether people were going to get excited about, you know, coming to Jekyll Island, but there's so many beautiful little islands down there in that area. They came and uh, it was uh, very, very successful. People were really excited. They went away with a big buzz, uh, excited about the next conference and people now wanting to join our committees. So we populated the committees. That conference was a big boom to us being able to populate the committees. Mike Sachs committee, health psychology, Bonnie Berger, Larry Brawley, Brad Hadfield, Dave Pargman, Wes Sign, uh, Intervention Performance Enhancement with Kirschenbaum, Dan Gould, Michael Mahoney from Penn State, uh, Andy Myers, Tara Scanlon, Bob Weinberg, Social Psych with Bert Karen as the chair, Brenda Bertemeyer, Wayne Hollywell, rest his soul, Carol Oglesby, Glenn Roberts. I mean, wow, what a lineup for wonderful chairs with amazing committees. I mean, and, and here's another little bit of a sore point. We got to do a much better job of teaching the history of sports psychology. You know, there's so many people that they wouldn't even recognize half of these names. Sure. And these are some of the biggest people in, in, in our field that have helped build our field up. And they're falling through the cracks of it. That's why I love what you're doing. You're creating history. You're creating an amazing archive of information that I hope people will go to and educate themselves. It should be required for everybody trying to get certification. That <laughs> <laughs> well, is, that is, I appreciate you saying that, John. And that is honestly one of the reasons why, you know, we wanted to, to do this. And when we spoke with uh, some of the past presidents at the annual luncheon, this was one of the points that we were trying to make is regardless of what the content is in terms of opinion or perspective, there really is no, uh, you know, uh, repository of, of what you're, you're kind enough to share with us and all of the other uh, uh, past presidents too. Um, and that's really what this is about. And, and I, I will say selfishly, we get more and more excited to, you know, be privy to um, to, to all of, all of it, uh, because there is no other way. There isn't a textbook, you know, that contains the, the richness of what, you know, what is being shared. So we, I, we appreciate you taking the moment to, um, acknowledge that. It's exactly why we are so passionate about doing this. Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea. And like I said, you know, the history, uh, it's really missing and uh, people getting prepared to go into the field. And I think it's so important to have an understanding of, you know, how you were created, where we came from, the types of things that we went through uh, and, and kind of where we are now, so to speak. And, you know, some of the struggles that we're still challenged by in sports psychology that were, were really brought up when we first founded the organization. Right. Absolutely. You know, we were debating certification and accreditation at our first organizational meeting in Nags Head. Amazing. I, I, it's, I'm, I'm letting it all sit because there's just so much there to acknowledge and celebrate and be frustrated about too, like you said, and to, um, and the gratitude for you sharing all of this. I, I also just think it's so funny and Brandon will ask this in a second, but uh, about your, your presidency, um, but that 
you know, it was just write, write a name down on a paper. Let's see what happens. You know, we're moving forward. We're doing this. And I so appreciate your willingness to say, you know what, if, if we have some momentum for this, we got to make it happen now. So let's go, let's, let's have this meeting now. Let's go start making, taking some steps and, um, moving forward with it. Cause I think you're right. If, if there had been more time or you had slowed down, then who knows what would have happened. So the fact that it would, have been a, it would have been a mess. Right, right. Well, know, I, I, I didn't want to get involved in that, you know. Yeah. And it would have been. And there were, you know, there were big name people that just, they did not want it to happen. Now, eventually, most of them came around mm-hmm. and sure. came, came to ask, you know, which was tremendous to see. And I embraced them, you know. We welcomed yeah. everybody. Well, and I also want to thank you for your honesty and sharing these stories. Uh, I think it's important for us to all remember or to learn that it was not easy to do this and that there was a lot of opposition that you and that crew faced um, doing this to to keep in mind how we're interacting with and treating each other now uh, to learn from our past and to hopefully do better moving forward. Yeah, no, uh... I think when people saw the executive board that we had, the chairs that we had, and then how quickly we populated those committees, yeah. they knew we can't stop this. Yeah, sure. That quick. I, there's a part of me also that loves that this, uh, and I didn't know this until now, that this happened at another conference, <laughs> you know, like, that this happened at, at another meeting. Um, yeah. and and you know, as they say, the rest is, is, is history. Yeah. Uh, such a fascinating, I think. Oh, one funny thing, you know, NASCAR turned that opportunity down. And again, I, in the beginning, I thought, I hope they do it, they, you know, that we can do this within NASPA. We love NASPA. It's all we had, you know, right, NASPA. Right. And as it turns out, it, it was really good that they did turn it down. It just opened the doors wide for me uh, to get the thing started. And, uh once they saw we were going, you know, a, a few months, two or three months, uh, a, a person in NASPA asked me to run for NASPA president. Oh, okay. And I respectfully declined. So that'll give you another idea how what they're willing to do to try and stop the organization. Well, that's it's interesting you bring that up because that's actually you know one of our next questions that um, and I'm thinking like how do we ask you this question, um, you know because it's it's different for for all the other past presidents and and the question is you know what what motivated you to run for president and here you are just you just said that you're actually asked by NASPA to run for president and respectfully decline. And then when we think about ASP and, and the and the stories that you just shared in terms of how you were elected. Um, I guess we'll, we'll ask the question, John, um, but maybe let you answer it in a way that you feel would be most appropriate in terms of, um, you know, what what motivated you to to run for president. Uh, maybe it's more appropriate to to say to accept the 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 um, the results of that election in that hotel room um, that 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 uh, that evening. Um, we'll, we'll ask. We'll kind of put it out there. Maybe let you run with it as you see fit. Brandon, I had so much energy back then, all the different things that I was doing at the same time. 
And this was so important to me because I loved sports psychology, you know, right from the get-go, that second semester sophomore year, you know, uh, I loved sports psych. I loved everything about it. And then to see what was happening after going through such a really respectful ethical program at Maryland where ethics were really stressed, uh, you know, and how you do things was really important. I just saw our field being kind of dragged through the mud, to be honest with you, mm. with all these people saying they can do that. I can do this. I can do that. I can do sports psychology. It was disrespectful. And this has gone on for decades. We still have it happening. Sure. Yeah. You know, just because you have a license, and I'm very, I'm very much in favor of the double major undergrad. And I think the masters in sports psych, and I've talked to people about this, you know, I think there should be two tracks. One is a research track and one is an applied track. And I think we, we've got to get at that master's level. And if, if students want to go on and be researchers, they need to go in the research track and become teachers and researchers in sports psychology. And we need good teachers at the university level and good researchers. I think our research has gone way down, honestly, in mm. the last decade or two. You know, we need really good researchers in sports psych. The applied area, you know, you still get some exposure, of course, to the research process, but we should send students to a master's degree that's a practice degree in exercise science kinesis departments that then gives you certification or gets you really, really close and then catapults you onto the PhD in an area where you can sit for a license because. I think that person really is a sports psychologist. They had the double major. They had the practical orientation to get certification in their master's. And now they've got clinical counseling, social, whatever are the appropriate venues to be able to sit for licensure. And they can really call themselves a sports psychologist. And, you know, I don't think our past should hold us back from our future. Yeah, and that's not even our future. That's our present. Hmm. And the students get it. I mean, people have been fighting this and fighting this, but the students already get it. And if students want to get a job today with a professional team or with a college or university, those jobs are advertised. They want somebody with a license or who can get a license within a year in the state that they're going to be working in. As certification, as important as I believe it is, and I, I, I'm totally behind that it's sometimes not even mentioned mm-hmm. or it's mentioned way down the bottom as you know we would like you to have this credential but schools and professional teams want the license because they want the legal protection that comes from having that license and if some kid commits suicide you know and they're being seen by somebody who's not licensed i think they see themselves as much more vulnerable to a significant suit but not having a licensed person in psychology working with these student athletes and all the jobs for at least the the past five to seven years, at least from the universities and the pro teams, they're advertised that way. And I think a lot of students recognize that whether ASP is, ASP is not in the lead here, the students get it. They see what's happening. And if they want that job, they, they're going to need to get a license. So, you know, this was going on way back when, you know, when when I started ASK. This really was a big part of the motivation is what we're doing ethical. Mm -hmm. Are we being fair 
to our students. We have no idea what to tell them for preparation. Uh, we don't have a lot of practice experiences for our students. Is this fair for the consumer that you know, you're working with people that are basically learning on the job? The growth that I saw in my grad students through those two supervised practicums was immense, absolutely immense. From some of them being almost too scared, you know, this is an all-American athlete. Who am I to work with them? And I say to them, you're you're becoming an all-American sports psychologist. You know, you're not going to go out there and play defensive tackle on the football team. You're not going to come in here and do sports psychology. I said, you're you're getting trained. You know, you can do this. I mean, sometimes you had to encourage some of the students. You know, one of the best students I had, and I won't use his name. He was a chem psych double major at Duke and played football, started on the football team at Duke. And he came in and he ate up sports psych. And when we got into clinic, he was so good because he was not intimidated at all. He knew his sports psych and he played varsity football at Duke. And in the other, some of the other students, because we filmed everything, they were like, oh my God. You know, he's so good. I said, yeah, because he's not afraid to apply right. what he knows. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope I'm answering this. My motivation was I just felt that the field Absolutely. was not developing properly. It was, there was no path. There was no development, really. It was askew. Uh, and so many people that we had never heard of coming out, something had to be done. Um, I felt a passion about sports psych in general. And I felt a passion about advancing applied sports psychology. So my heart's still broken that they took advancement out of the title uh, of our association. I, again, I don't, I don't even know why that was done. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Dr. John Silva. Please join us next time for part two to hear more about his experiences and perspectives. We will see you then.